0: Snuff production. I went and watched the Matildas play when I was 12 years old and I think there was 300 people in the stadium. What we have done changed women's sport in Australia, not just football, but generally in sport. This is what we wanted to do. We wanted to inspire the next generation and, yeah, pave the way for women's football in Australia.
1: So this is already the biggest ever Women's World Cup. The crowd attendance has blown away the previous record of the 2015 Canada World Cup. And it's not even over yet. So in this episode of The Briefing, we look at the economics of sport and ask, how do we capitalise on this amazing moment? How do we make it last so there's more support for the game and better rewards for the players and the future players? I mean, if I was an Australian company wanting to build my
2: brand in the UK or somewhere, I'd sign up Sam Kerr. You know, I'd sign up all of them. It is the world game. Mm. Let's capitalise it. If I was the Australian government, I'd be on the phone to the head of the FA and just say, look, we want to use the Matildas at all uh, public
1: diplomacy events. That interview in our briefing. First, here are today's big headlines with Antoinette Latouf. It is Wednesday the 16th of August.
0: Start warming up those voice boxes, get them ready for screaming and cheering. And while you're at it, why don't you chuck in a few stretches for all that jumping? Because tonight, the Matildas will attempt to knock off England in the World Cup semi-final in Sydney. And it turns out all that cheering does pay off. Goalkeeper Mackenzie Arnold says when the game's been tight, the crowd has really lifted them. I really do believe they've gotten us over the line um, more times than once. So, um, yeah, they're going to be vital for us. Yeah,
1: it's going to be an amazing match. And so was last night's game, the other semi-final. So mm. Spain beat Sweden in an absolute nail-biter. It was nil-all up until the last 10 minutes. And that's when all the last three goals were scored. So Spain beat Sweden 2-1. Um, so that's who we'll be playing if we win tonight.
0: Yeah, it was absolutely epic. Um, what I loved seeing, though, Tom, was all the compassion and the camaraderie. So the Spanish players were hugging and comforting the Swedes, who were understandably absolutely devo. And I just, mm. I really love that sportswomanship because that level of sort of compassion and care, it's not something you often see on the field.
1: And Donald Trump has been indicted in Georgia. So this is the fourth set of charges he's facing. He's been charged with being the head of a criminal enterprise to overturn the 2020 election. 18 allies, including Rudy Giuliani, have also been charged. And a key piece of evidence is a phone call in January 2020 where Trump pressured Georgia's governor to find more votes. Here it is.
0: All I want to do is this. I just want to find 11,000... 780 votes, which is one more that we have.
1: So Trump now faces a total of 91 charges in four criminal cases in four different jurisdictions, two federal and two state cases. He can only pardon himself from the federal charges, not the state charges. And these latest charges mean it could be a total of four trials before the election next year.
0: Yeah, look, if it's hard to keep up with the... Trump legal calendar. Honestly, I don't blame you because this latest indictment, it bookends like this remarkable uh, build-up of criminal cases. Um, as you mentioned, Tom, four in five months and each is in a different city. Uh, but this one is the second to arise from those efforts to overturn the 2020 loss. And I, I think what's really you know, interesting for me is um Trump's response to all of them is along the lines of, yeah, nah, not true. He's essentially pleading not guilty to all charges. And I don't know, for for me, one of the most astonishing aspects um, of this is not just the scale of these allegations. Um, it's that in a year and a half, he could still be sworn in as president because he still dominates Republican primary polling.
1: Well, yeah, it seems like we're just heading for a car crash of a year next year in America. You know, after 2020, it seemed like Trump was going to go away and all this would die down. But certainly um, the opposite is turning out to true and the most dramatic situation is happening where he could be in court or or even in jail during the election campaign. I think it will, you know, rally the base. But I also think this is going to rally the, the Democrats as well and, It's all about turnout in America, and I think this will drive a lot of people to turn out to make sure this man never becomes president again, even though it will encourage his hardened supporters.
0: Yeah, his hardened supporters are going to argue this is just their attempts to muzzle the truth um, and they're going to steal this second election from him like they did the first. But, I, yeah, I'd agree with you that hopefully this actually encourages more people to come forward. And as often happens with legal cases, it takes months and months and months before it even gets in court, let alone plays out. So it's not as though this is all going to be done and dusted before America votes. And we're not often in the business of good news, so I'm super pleased to share this about the four Aussie surfers that went missing in Indonesia. They've all been found alive. So, Elliot Foote, Steph Weiss, Jordan Short, and Will Teagle clung to their boards for 36 hours after their boat sank off the coast of Aceh. And here's Elliot talking about the moment he was found floating in the ocean yesterday.
1: Oh, there's my mates, oh, there's Steph, Jordan, and Will. I'm like, oh. Sick. And
0: they're like waving and going, yeah. There were also three Indonesian crew members that went missing and sadly one of those locals mm. is still missing.
1: Yeah, that's really sad. Hopefully they can still find um, that local who was on board the boat with them but um, listening to that elation there from Elliot Foot, there is just so good um, and the family's now been speaking out as well. They've been saying they might not come home um, straight away because you know, they went there for a reason and they're in paradise.
0: They're fine physically. um,
2: Mentally, they're shot. Yeah. They were petrified, but they've
0: got their 10 best mates with them. They're in paradise. That's Elliot's dad, Peter, and Will's sister, Amy, on nine. And what I also love about this story is that Elliot, who was separated from the rest of the group because he went out paddling looking for help, he ended up sending his dad a text from someone else's phone um, and it was, "Hey, Dad, Elliot here. I'm alive, safe now. Love you. Chat later." Um, and yeah. his dad was reflecting on the fact that he just loves it, like it was. It was just a "Hi, Dad, I'm alive" kind of message, and that he thinks his son's probably back out surfing and has no plans to come home sooner.
1: Yeah, it's just an amazing story. When we read this story yesterday in the briefing, I, I really, I really didn't have that much hope that they would be found. They, you know, mm. been gone for a while and they're out in the ocean and you know not a lot of people around to to go searching for them but it was incredible how quickly they pulled together a rescue effort with Australian authorities and locals and another Australian guy on a big catamaran who was sailing around who knew the waters really well and yeah they were able to find them so it's just such a good story all right Antoinette about to go deep into footy-nomics um the economics of the Matildas, and where they're all going with this incredible surge in support.
2: From the spot, she sends Australia through. The World Cup is now just two steps away. It's a first ever World Cup semi-final for Australia. It is rarefied air. And this team, your team, truly belongs there.
1: The Matildas have literally changed the game. No Australian football team has ever come this far in a World Cup. So let's talk about how we use this moment to grow the sport and build the careers of these amazing women and the future players that they're going to inspire. Tim Harcourt is an economist. He's written a book called Footinomics and he's the former chief economist at Austrade. Tim, thanks for joining us on The Briefing. There is something very special going on here at this World Cup. I think one of the biggest stars aligning is how well the Matildas are doing, that they're winning and they've come this far. But what else do you think is culminating to make this event the biggest Women's World Cup ever? Look, for me, it feels like the America's
2: Cup when Australia won the sailing. It feels like the Sydney Olympics. Mm. It just is one of those moments. And um, the way I feel it is that Australians, no matter what sports they follow, if Australia does well, we get behind it. <laughs> suddenly, people who maybe have not watched a lot of soccer, may not have watched a women's soccer game before, are suddenly right into it. And mm. they know all the Matilda's names, and they know all you know the injuries,
1: and and I think they're right into it. It's quite mm. extraordinary. Yeah, so a lot of um, the success of a sport comes down to money, and this is your thing. You're an economist looking at footynomics. That's the name of your podcast. What's going on now because this tournament's going so well. What do you think the the short and medium term financial impacts are? Well, I think it's amazing because it's the you know it's the biggest event Australia has held
2: since the Sydney Olympics and of course we hold it with New Zealand which is always a bonus. And you know even before the great success of the Matildas, you know Football Australia, the FA was talking about, you know, 400 million dollars in benefits, 3,000 full-time jobs. You know, they really thought you know tourism numbers would explode which 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 they have so i think there was a bit of a a post covid boom if you like mm. and then i think with the legacy 23 program i think the fa really wants to say once the carnival's over what what can we build mm. for i think for girls soccer and and boys too how can we really build it up so that we get you know a real long lasting legacy from the you
1: know great success of this tournament, well, it's great to see there is a program in place to do that to to capture the momentum. Given there's been so much, you know, possibly more than they even expected. But what's it going to do? You know, we see huge pay differentials. Like the the winners of this competition are going to earn ten times less than um, the winner of the men's competition, in Argentina, in the World Cup in Qatar last year. So ten x is a shocking differential. The top um, male soccer players are earning twenty x on the top women's soccer players. Do you think that's going to change now that we're seeing record TV ratings, record crowd attendance, great opportunities for sponsors? Do you see a lot more money coming into the sport quite soon? I think there will be. I mean, what's interesting about Australia is that Australian men's soccer
2: players do get equal pay. Uh, and the I know that Craig Foster, when he was a, a union leader for the, for the mm. men's game one of the women to get the same and, and they've worked
1: together so the base pay for the, the base Australian base the mens players yeah yeah I think that's, the sponsorship is I where think it, that's right and the yeah. same
2: in the USA I think the the nations where soccer for women is really strong uh, they've been able to get equal pay which is right um, mm. because when you think about it I mean the Matildas are getting the big crowds they're getting the big TV rights and you know pays based on revenue mm. and so you've got to say they deserve it you know um, but I think with the game overall as you say, I mean, sports stars just get paid a lot, and especially (laughs) the English Premier League, they just get paid astronomical amounts compared to what they got paid in the 1980s, you know. Mm. So it's
1: just, that's been the explosion of of the the labour market Yeah. soccer, So the numbers are ridiculous in the men's game, but, you know, the top men are earning 200 million, the top women are earning 7 million. So that comes down to the clubs in in Europe, basically, and the sponsorship yeah. dollars. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, Sam Kerr will be getting
2: it because she's playing over at Chelsea, and and all the, I mean, ultimately, all the Matildas, you know, play overseas, just as the great Socceroos, you know, the Golden Generation did. So we we know that's going to happen. Um, so the only thing we can do that's in our control in Australia is have equal pay here and ensure that the Matildas pick up good contracts and endorsements, and I think they are because they've got mm. a very good brand.
1: Well, if you were a brand wanting to connect with positive, inclusive values, I mean, you couldn't really do any better than the Matildas, could you? It's not just the fact that the the metrics are now looking really good with the amount of people watching them on TV and the amount of people turning up to games. It's also the, the spirit in which they play the game and what they represent that must be really attractive for sponsors. Surely they're going to get a few knocks on the door.
2: I think they will. I mean, I, it's not I mean, it's not all totally squeaky clean. There was the issue that Lisa Devana raised with, you know, sexual harassment and bullying Mm. in the Matildas a couple of years ago. So there have been issues here and there. But ultimately, as the sport gets more economically successful, there'll be more resources to deal with governance and accountability. And for that reason, I think the brand will get even better.
1: Okay. So when you look at the Legacy 23 program, um, this is something that Football Australia devised leading into the World Cup that looks at building the sport from the grassroots, more participation, better facilities right through to the elite program. What are they going to have to do here? What are all the different elements they need to build to capitalise on the moment we're all part of right now?
2: Well, speaking to Sarah Walsh, from Football Australia, who's head of the women's program, and she was saying, you know, they're looking at getting 400,000 new participants, 407,000 new participants. Mm. So, you know, they've only got 2,500 pitches. So she was saying, oh, we've got to get the uh, the change rooms and the community clubs ready because there's going to be this explosion of girls and, and boys indeed. And you hear all these stories from the old Matildas about how they, um, you know, had to Take three buses, and there was no change rooms, and mm. you know it was pretty tough. Uh, there was dangers of sexual assault and all that sort of stuff. So uh, they clearly really thought about it. Thought about you know how do we um, allow for the huge pickup in demand, and also I think they they know that you know the Matildas have got a um, great centre for training you know, in Melbourne at La Trobe University. That's great for the Matildas, but they do know that but we've got to make it apply to all the grassroots of. Australian soccer, particularly, there's a big explosion of girls wanting to play. And I think, yes, yeah, Sarah Walsh and the legacy team have, have really thought about that.
1: What about the women's A-League? That kicks off in November. Do you think that will be an important marker of how well we've captured the zeitgeist from the World Cup?
2: Yes, yeah, interesting. You know, people closer to the game than I are, are sort of worried about when the carnival moves over, the A-League and men's and women's will go back to normal, which, you know... Um, Is disappointing? Well, I, I think they're worried about it. I, I mean, I think it's obviously going to improve... Uh, but at the, look, at the end of the day, soccer, like basketball, the great players will go overseas. We know that. Um, but we have the Opals and the Boomers. We have the Matildas. We have the Socceroos. We have our great players coming home for the big tournaments. But at the end of the day, they'll go where the money is. So they can't kick themselves too hard if the A-League isn't tomorrow like the, like the World Cup. It's not going to be. So what do you think we need to do to capitalise on this moment? I think we could do a lot in terms of um, sports diplomacy, you know, Matildas will be a good international brand. Mm. A lot of the countries have come here, really loved Australia. And then you see um, our great communities. You, you, I don't know if any of you went to a Colombian game, but the Colombian crowd was mm. fantastic. And Colombians are the, the second source of our students in Australia, apart from Brazilians. And um, I just think the types of things we can do with Colombia Week and Brazil Week in terms of trade and diplomacy, where I worked at Austrade, we could really do a lot of that with, with women's sport that we haven't done yet.
1: Right, so you Mm. see a lot of benefits beyond just women's football. Yeah, beyond the pitch, yeah. Broader Mm. tourism, international students. International uh, trade. Embracing our migrant communities better.
2: Yeah, I mean, because one thing about soccer, you know, of course they call it football everywhere, except Australia and the USA and Canada and South Africa. It's basically called called football around the world. The good thing about it is everyone plays it. So when you think about international students, if you think about international trade, Mm. if you think about our ties with Asia, the Middle East, South America, you know, it's a very strong brand. And now that women's football, women's soccer is very good as well. And, you know, Columbia has a magnificent team. Uh, mm. Brazil has a magnificent team. Now that's big as well. It's almost like double the opportunity. So, you know, I actually think that's where a lot of the growth's going to be.
1: How do we actually harness those, those ambassadors? Do we take them on tours to these countries? Is it just the games that they play in these parts of the world? How can we best maximize the power of these amazing ambassadors? Well, I think when they retire, uh, make them ambassadors. So, Rod McQueen, the famous right. Wallabies
2: coach, of course, won the World Cup um, at Austrade. We had Rugby Business Club Australia and Rod McQueen hosted us all over the world and his profile was fantastic for getting businesses in and doing a lot of schmoozing, you know, the power of schmooze at all these events. So. Yeah, well,
1: you're saying we can make them ambassadors. So, instead of putting these retired politicians, <laughs> jobs for the mates into, say, ambassador to Italy, France or, or Kenya... We should put retired sports stars, you know, retirement illness. Well,
2: they don't have to be like strictly ambassadors uh, in the legal term, but they can be brand ambassadors. Uh, I mean, I know that, um, you know, Adam Gilchrist and Matthew Hayden, Brett Lee were really big brand ambassadors in, in India. Uh, Matthew Hayden and Lisa Stellica were sort of endorsing UTS in India, which was great. Mm. Gilly did the same, same thing for the University of Wollongong. I mean, if I was an Australian company wanting to build my brand in the UK or somewhere, I'd sign up Sam Kerr. You know, I'd sign up all of them now. Mm. I mean... Uh, <laughs> quick. Yeah, quick. I mean, Before if, they win if, too many more games. If you're doing business in the Pacific, Papua New Guinea, I mean, Mary Fowler, I and mean, there you go. So I actually think that's where a lot of the growth's going to be. It's going to be off-field and, uh, and that's where, you know, if I was advisor to Football Australia, I'd be saying, well, here's your... It is the world game. Mm. Let's capitalise it. Yeah. If I was the Australian government, I'd be on the phone to the head of the FA and just say, "Look, we want to use the Matildas at all our uh, public diplomacy events, and they'll get. I mean, you can imagine um, Sam Kerr is in a, a school in Indonesia or somewhere; she'll get she'll get mobbed. You know, it's a great potential.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess the whole point of this is it's about both. It's about generating more growth in all of these economic sectors for our economy, but these players getting a better clip of the deal mm. so that they can have more lucrative careers and encourage other young women to to really tank their football to the top level. Yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because they've been saying
2: that um, women, you know, women had to pay for their own uniforms. I think, mm. you know, all the old stories of the original Matildas is extraordinary what they had yeah. to do. So now you can think, well, not only will you get paid well because you're playing in the World Cup, but post-career. Yeah you'll be a brand ambassador for X, Y, and Z. Mm. So there's many ways to, um, to start. I mean, if you're good at sport, you've already got a head start. And we used to always worry about what do people do after sport, you mm. know, because they often, after they leave the stage and they're over 30, they, you know, sink without a trace. Can be hard, yeah. Yeah, it can be very hard on them. But, but here's, a, here's an avenue and here's a global market. And I would have thought if I was running Football Australia, that's where I'd be looking.
1: Tim Harcourt, economist at UTS and author of Footynomics, And I really wonder whether that 10 times pay difference in prize money at the men's to women's World Cups is going to change. I mean, some other sports got there a while ago with equal prize money for men and women at Grand Slam tennis events and surfing. So I wonder how far football has to go. Listener.